What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Lopriori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. My name is Daniel Priori, and I am joined today by a nationally recognized public speaker and author. Nate Cannon. Nate, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? I can't complain. I'm out here living the dream in here, uh, you know, in New York City, where uh, the median rent is $4,000. Nate, there are so many questions that I want to ask you, but for the listeners, I was wondering if you could just give yourself a little bit of an introduction so they could have the grasp on what we're going to talk about, obviously, as the episode unfolds. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm a transgender man who underwent transition back in 2012 after running into some barriers in my efforts to transition between 2010 and 2011, uh, which really amplified some mental health symptoms, uh, which I'd experienced since a young age. So a lot of those challenges are not unique to me. And those are things that unfortunately seem to be kind of disproportionately uh, prevalent within the trans community. Uh, something that after I had a near fatal suicide attempt during the kind of the height of my dysphoria, not only did it set me out on a journey to really kind of figure out what my true diagnosis was, as it turned out, I was living with the wrong diagnosis of major depression for 20 years and thus taking uh, medications that could make it worse and uh, make a, what turned out to be bipolar worse. You know, finding that right diagnosis for me was important and that also kind of helped me get to a place uh, through some connections that I had and friends that I had made uh, who were doing some mental health advocacy. And so I really got involved in that in 2012. And it just meshed with when I was starting my gender transition. And that's really become a key piece of what I've done with, with my life is to kind of help speak about these types of issues and definitely give a voice to folks who might be feeling marginalized or stigmatized. For sure. I feel like we live obviously still in a generation that's, you know, as accepting as it's ever been mm-hmm. when it comes to the trans community. Would you agree? I would agree. And I think that that atmosphere or climate has really become more magnified here in the last few years. It's uh, definitely something I've seen in, in my speaking as well. Uh, just the divisive nature of talking about either mental health or transgender. For um, sure put them together. And then I also live with a brain injury and a neurological condition that did result from uh, one of my two suicide attempts when I had when I was 17. And so you're talking about then kind of that intersection along with disability as well. And that becomes a, a very difficult place for folks to seem to find a voice right now. There has been something of a trajectory that I've been concerned about that has almost become a, a regression back to a criminalization of disability in a way. So it's, we're at an interesting time. We're talking about some of these issues can really give voice, but I also worry about times when speaking openly can be used as uh, fuel for others to then perpetuate uh, that cycle of hate that we're seeing right now. 100%. We have a lot more people that are openly allies, but like, you know, with social media, 
the internet and just the internet in general, you see the opposite side just as like magnified almost. I wanted to ask, being trans, right? Do you feel that as a community, the trans community, that you get as much support from the LGBTQ community as you possibly can? Or do you feel that there's still even taboo within, you know, the LGBTQ plus community? I would definitely say that there is some stigma and taboo within the community, particularly around the topics of talking about uh, mental health and transgender issues. I've found to be uh, something of uh, a place that can be a hot button issue in the sense that folks who identify with the community and allies um, may not want to put out the message that somehow it which would get, get garbled in a way but uh, would not be my intended message, but could end up resulting in folks believing that being transgender is a mental illness in and of itself. So a big piece of what I do in my talks is to try and untangle that and make clear that being transgender is not in and of itself a mental illness. It's the symptoms of dysphoria that uh, create that diagnosis. That's what a lot of people that actually don't have the best grasp on the trans community, they, they immediately go to like, oh, this is like a severe mental illness. And I think that has to just come with them just not understanding how to uh, rationalize it in their brain. Mm-hmm. We definitely know that culturally, uh, my degree, my undergraduate degree is in sociology of law, criminology, and deviance. And we don't know that race and gender it can very much be divisive issues that uh, have very strong beliefs about, and that can really tear us apart uh, and, and in terms of our community and our sense of belonging. So uh, being aware of some of those precipitating factors that can kind of further those divides, I think has been important for me in navigating the sphere of being a trans person and also in living with a mental health condition and a neurological condition as well. For sure. I mean, listen, you got a lot going on. That's a lot to deal with. It's just like also if, if you really boil it down to just basic civil rights, right? Hmm. Even between someone who is gay and then somebody who is trans, they belong to either community. The rights are completely different. So it's almost like not saying that everybody, but like you said, it's a, it's a hot button issue for even people within their own community. Certainly. And I, I will add that I found it challenging, although I, I transitioned 10 years ago, you know, I did find it challenging in the sense that there was some friction along the lines of uh, losing some of my friends who identified as lesbian, for example. Hmm. And I think that can be an issue for folks who transition and are no longer welcome on the lesbian softball team, for instance, and don't right, be right. part of the community. Uh, so that can really tie into those mental health symptoms that can exacerbate some of the potential uh, lingering dysphoria if you're in in a process of transition and looking to resolve that dysphoria, it certainly wouldn't help. Let's start at the beginning, right? So when you were a child, when do you recall the earliest that you said, you know what, there's something going on here? Really some of my earliest memories. And that's something that uh, actually my mom has talked to me about since my transition and told me at one point, she told me she knew that I was transgender as early as age three, uh, because I insisted I was supposed to stand to pee. And I certainly don't remember that at all. Right. Uh, but she's also told me that she m- it may have gone from, from her perspective, she may have seen some signs as far back as like age two, because even as a, a small girl trying to put her still baby in a dress, yeah. I was just not having it. I mean, it just, there was something about it. And I hadn't gone to you know nursery school or anything yet. So I hadn't 
gotten any of that socialization factor that some folks might fear uh, leads to that uh, almost contagion that could lead others to have a, a false sense of themselves. I'm very convinced that this is something that I, I knew very concretely about myself and caused me incredible distress. And it was certainly not at a time in the early 80s, uh, nor in a place in Iowa where it was talked about. Right. Yeah. So it was kind of a thing that I, I had to keep between my mom and myself in terms of how I expressed my gender at that time and place. So I am, I am a firm believer that this is for some people a very much uh, a part of their birth and their, uh, the way that they were born. And so this, um, to me, what has kind of been like a biological error in a way is something that I've now been able to take as many steps as I can to hopefully correct. And that has had an enormous benefit for my mental health. You know, it's, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So everyone's saying, you know, I wish I was able to do this earlier, but I just believe that everybody's journey is their own. You know, I feel a lot of people beat themselves up because, you know, it was something, oh, I wish I was able to identify this sooner or whatever. It's just not that easy. Yeah, I, I agree. It is not that easy and it's not that linear uh, for myself, especially given the, the complexities of sexual orientation versus gender identity. When you get into adolescence, young adulthood, it can be very confusing and you definitely want to explore and you, you do. You explore your sexuality, you figure out what you like and what you don't like. And we should be allowed to do that with gender as well. Um, and I think that's something that really for, in terms of developmental psychology, we do know that kids do develop that sense of gender identity at a very young age, about for age four or five. So often you do hear folks that identify as transgender recognizing that, hey, I was really aware of this when I was a kid. And yet for a lot of folks that are in my generation, a little bit older than the, the younger generations that have uh, different barriers to access and different challenges. Uh, for my generation, it was something where it was kind of like, we hope you grow out of it. And eventually, you hope you do. But when you get to that place of adding in sexual orientation, for example, that can be very confusing. So for myself, I identified as a lesbian for many years and thought that that really kind of explained a lot of that stuff that I uh, experienced in terms of what was part of the trans identity. And I just didn't have any conscious awareness of it anymore. So by the time I got to adolescence, I was starting to you know, lose sight of that little boy that has yeah strong voice. And it took me many, many more years in that near fatal suicide attempt to finally be able to get to a place where I could give voice to that, that kid who needed to experience his childhood and needed to experience uh, that uh, kind of rebirth and growth of who I was meant to be all along. So it, it is really a very difficult journey and everyone's road path through that journey is going to be different. Uh, my hope is that given that we do see numbers around 41% of individuals who identify as transgender may have a suicide attempt in their lifetime. Wow. We've seen numbers coming out that in the past year, for example, upwards of 55 to 60% of transgender men or boys have had suicidal thoughts just within the last year. And wow. we've, we've seen increasing numbers around this and that is very alarming. And so if I can help talk with folks and, and spread some education and awareness around how intense the mental health symptoms can be around gender dysphoria um, and how important it is to honor that identity. I want to do everything I can to, to do that. I've always just said it's got to be so tough when you're a kid. My nephew uh, identifies as trans almost around the age. I believe he told my mom, 
you know, his grandma that he was like, I don't identify as a girl. I don't feel like a girl. And, you know, this was something that, you know, my mom's an older generation. So, you know, when you hear kids, you know, it's kind of like, oh, like, you know, I feel the older generations is kind of like, oh, you know, we'll wait it out, you know, and see like, uh, you know, and then a lot of it's too. It's like, not that she said this, but like, well, maybe you're just gay. You have a lot of people just kind of like pulling you in different directions. It's like, oh, no, like, yeah, you're just a kid, you know, like just being a kid's weird. And then as it gets older, it's like, oh, you know, as it goes on and time goes longer, it's like, oh, maybe you're just gay. Mm-hmm. That does seem to be a, a common thread or a, a misconception. And I think it's really important that we do have conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity for that reason, so that people can understand the differences and be able to identify for themselves where they align. And uh, I think, you know, definitely we're seeing a more fluid world in terms of it not being quite as binary, but in a lot of realms, we still live in a very binary world. And as we talked about uh, with some very strong convictions that uh, can make that make seeing outside the box difficult for a lot of people. Even you said, you said you identified as a lesbian, but even when you were in that era of your life, were you ever, you know, like fully convinced, oh, I'm a lesbian? Or was that just like a coping thing? Like, you know what? I feel like the world's just going to be a little more comfortable if I just say I'm a lesbian. I do think I had lost conscious awareness of it. And a large part of that, I wonder if it has something to do with what was really kind of local news with where I grew up with the murder of a young man named Brandon Tina, who was a transgender man that uh, was violently raped and murdered and then didn't really have a great experience in talking with the police about this. Uh, when he tried to report the rape, it, yeah. it was not taken seriously. And subsequently he was uh, killed. This incident was something that popped up in my local newspaper when I was uh, 12 years old. So this was something that was my first exposure to understanding what a transsexual was. And it was very difficult for me to process in the sense that I, I saw what happened to this person. I understood what happened to this person and I didn't want to experience that. And having read that, it became something that I think might have contributed to aligning with the time when I was hitting puberty and hitting, you know, getting messages from the world that, you know, you're you're going to develop into a woman. That's just going to happen. So we yeah. better accept it. And sure enough, you know, those things happen. So that, that was an accurate statement to make, but it was just very distressing for me to experience that. And so at some point, I did lose, lose sight of that. And uh, when I got to a place of identifying as, as a lesbian and recognized that, hey, you know, maybe this explains a lot of that gender stuff, I really was mixing up my sexual orientation and gender identity. I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity in my life to kind of work through some things to recognize uh, when those symptoms were starting to resurface. But I did have a period there in identifying as a lesbian where I recognized that I felt out of place. I didn't feel like I belonged in, in the women's locker room, even though I was playing on a women's college hockey team and a couple of my uh, teammates identified as lesbian. Uh, but I felt awkward going into the shower still. I felt like a man in the women's locker room. And likewise, when I was dating a, a woman in college, I, I could just never quite be feminine enough. She really wanted me to be a feminine person, much as my mom did. And yet I couldn't quite live up to those expectations. I, I could never feel comfortable wearing a dress. I seemed clunky and awkward. And I just didn't want makeup on, all of those sorts of things. Uh, longer hair, doing the hair up, just it didn't work for me. Right. 
And although those are very much secondary aspects of gender, uh, those were kind of the expressive aspects of gender that also um, really give a defining value to how you feel internally. For sure. Like the societal norms of a female. Sure. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that is, uh, I think, kind of reminds me of what my mom said about, you know, I I was not wanting to dress when I was two years old. Apparently I knew something uh, from a very young age, but at age 20, when it was expected that I dress nice to go to a hockey game, for example, uh, wearing a dress was not going to, I wasn't going to do that. You know, it was just, uh, that was not in my uh, wardrobe. So you played hockey in college, right? Correct. Okay. But that obviously you played before that. Yes. So were you on an all boys team? I was for many years. I grew up playing hockey basically as the only girl on the team for the majority of that time. And uh, one of the only girls that was playing hockey in the state of Iowa. And I'm very proud of that because I really feel that at that time and place uh, in the early nineties, and we saw really prominent uh, kind of strong feminist role models and people like Alanis Morissette and her music coming out. You know, that was a really inspiring thing for me to feel like I could be angry and I could get out there and I could hang with boys. Uh, that was a real great outlet for me growing up. Unfortunately, I, I didn't hit the growth spurt that the, the boys did when puberty hit. So, right. you know, the, it did become something of a controversy as well. And in terms of the locker rooms and when you start changing in the locker rooms and puberties come, what do you do with the girl in the locker room? And we did have those conflicts. There were ways to work around it then, and I believe that there are ways to work around that now. I do think that there is a, it's a very delicate and sensitive topic right now around that. But uh, I, I know from my experience growing up playing hockey on an all-boys team, that by and large, my, my teammates were very respectful of me. And uh, I felt you know, like they had my back, most of them. There are you know, a few exceptions, but there's a, an exception in, in every team. That, uh, there's always like a, a Disney movie villain that, that lurks, right? There, there's always a couple, but then like, you know, you, you make a play and then all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, everything's fine. They clap their hands and, and they do the whole Disney movie thing. So what drew you to hockey? Well, I, I think a lot of it actually was uh, the fact that several of my close boyfriends, uh, not boyfriends, but you know, right. it, seven, eight years old, my boyfriends who I had really gravitated to were in the sport. And that was a big piece of it. But so too, I was finding that with other sports like soccer, I had to play in the girls team, basketball, I had to play in the girls team. I couldn't hang out with the guys who were my friends. I, I, not that I didn't appreciate those opportunities to, to play with the girls, but at some point, I think the girls did recognize that my gender was a little different. And uh, I started to experience some kind of pushback in a way that I understand now was kids just kind of figuring out you know, where they belong and right. feeling uncomfortable with something they didn't understand. It wasn't uh, directed at me and at that time in a, in a hateful way. But, you know, you definitely can feel that when you're a kid. And I can sense that I, I felt a little out of place on the girls' teams. I would have much rather gone out and played with the boys. And it was an added bonus that with hockey, I could put on all this equipment and it really kind of just covered up my body. So as my body was changing, uh, it wasn't as apparent as it would have been in a sport like soccer or basketball. So I think there were some definite reasons behind it, but I also just loved the sport. Uh, I just, I really appreciated the the speed and movement of it. And it's, it's a quick sport and it's something that drew me to the state of Minnesota where it's, it's big deal, huge sport, especially for girls. It, it was becoming a high school sport for girls at that time um, in the early 90s as well. So just to add to your point, it's like with the girls, 
even they don't feel like you were girl enough. And then obviously you're playing hockey and it's all boys team. But I'm happy that you did find some support from your teammates just in terms of just being accepting like at the time, you know, she's rocking with us. Yeah. Yeah. By and large, you know, like I said, I, I did have a few very uncomfortable experiences, but those young men were uh, addressed by the the parents and and the appropriate folks who needed to have the discussion that they needed to have with them regarding boundaries and and how to be respectful of everyone in the locker room. There were moves made to offer me a private locker room at one point, And I think that that was uh, definitely a, a helpful piece in the terms of it, it quelled some of the tension uh, around what to do. But it also, I think for me in hindsight, it, it kind of pulled me out of that world and it pulled me out of the social piece of it. But I justified that as, well, at least they're, they're still letting me play. You know, at, at the time, Little League um, wasn't going to let me continue playing I wasn't able to join Boy Scouts. Some of those things that, you know, were very separated. And you're like, I don't want to make too big of a fuss because I want to play. Yeah. Yeah. So I just went along with it and was like, hey, this is cool. I'll, I'll do what I got to do. And if it means I can play. So this is something that I've, I wanted to ask is let's talk pronouns, right? Pronouns are obviously very important to, you know, not only the trans community, but many communities. Do you have like a grace period that you give people when it comes to pronouns? Oh, that's a good question. Do I have a grace period giving people? Yeah. You know, that's, I think, an individual kind of thing. And I really think it comes back to intent and what your relationship is with that person. And definitely for someone like my mom, it it took her some time to adjust to calling me by different pronouns and a different name. And for a while early on, I'd really kind of snap back and, you know, mom call me Nate. And I felt like she got farther away and that right. the truth. And so I realized that at some point that if, if I stopped you know, kind of snapping back at her and correcting her, that at some point it will register with her and hopefully she'll correct herself. And she did. And, you know, she had apologized and she said, you know, I'm so sorry, sweetie, you were my daughter for 31 years. And so right. being used to this uh, can be difficult. And I think that is, is something that I, I needed to be able to say, okay, my mom and she's doing the best she can. And like you said, you know, it's an older generation. And I mean, for having a daughter that length of time, I think that would be very difficult for a parent to adjust to. So I really do encourage folks to, to go easy on those who that are close to them, who know them, who are getting used to adjusting to pronouns. And so too, I, I think there's uh, you know something around intent and, and what that person's intentions are. If they're deliberately using uh, misgendering or not using the correct name, I think that is a different issue than that might uh, warrant having a little discussion around what that, what that means and what that feels like. And hoping, hoping that maybe that will make a stride forward. Uh, but I recognize too, that some people are just going to have their heels dug in. And the more that I push it, the more they're going to dig their heels in. Yeah. There is going to be always kind of that element of, uh, non-belief or a, a sense of you're not a real man and I'm not going to recognize you as such. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's like the fine line, right? It's a, like you said, like th- they're going to put their, their feet in the ground and be like, no, like I, I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. That's a tough fight. But uh, like you said, I think there is something behind intent, even with my nephew now, you know, sometimes I'll call him by his other name and I'll feel terrible about it, but it's just, you know, the human brain is only capable of so much sometimes. And he recognizes the intent. Right. And, yeah. and I think that's the important piece too. That's great. Uh, yeah. and not that you're, you're uh, having those hiccups because it's human. Yeah. Uh, 
so I wouldn't fault yourself at all, but I can, I can understand why you would feel bad. And I think it's fantastic that, that he's able to, you know, kind of, Hey, you know, I get it. Yeah. And you know, for someone to be that age and be understanding about it, mm-hmm. it's tough when you're a kid already. Yeah. You know, being a kid is just kind of rough as it is, you know, you're trying to figure out so much about yourself. And then you have something where you come forward as, as trans and then it's okay. Where do we go from here? What advice would you give to parents, especially young parents? Like you know, our our parents are our parents. Like we, we've already like realized like these people grew up and like saw JFK get shot and like you know like they're just all over the place. You know, it's just like they're they're here one day and here one day. But you know, for younger parents, for the next generation, what advice do you have for them? Because I think that as the world is getting more accepting you're going to see younger and younger uh, children, you know, come forward mm-hmm. and, um, you know, talk to their parents about, about being trans. What do you think and what advice do you have for, you know, the next era of parents? Keep an open mind, keep an open mind and be aware of, of human psychology and how development occurs. And when we do uh, universally as kids get in touch with who we are, in terms of our gender identity, uh, I worry about not offering curriculum that would uh, at least address what those topics mean, because I worry that folks would then be more likely to have those confusions around gender identity and sexual orientation, particularly when they get a little bit older and subsequently really have a more difficult time navigating where they fall in that field. And so I think it would be very important that uh, that folks who are parenting younger children recognize that we all do have an imagination. And I think for some kids, gender play can kind of be kind of fun. You know, certainly, if you, um, you know, if your brother joins you for a, a game or a, a like pretty, pretty princess or something like that, that's pretty exciting if he's going to put on jewelry and a little crown and play a little game with you if you're if you're a young girl. But certainly, you know, I think there's also boys are going to go and grab mom's lipstick and put it on. And that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's something going on with the gender that we need I've to. I've done it. To. Like, there you go. Uh, or take high heels, or whatever, you know, try on mom's dress. And she comes home and goes, why are you doing my dress? One of my first Halloween costumes, I dress as a woman. Really? Yeah, I was like 12, you know, like able to like go out. I'm like, dude, I'm, like me and three friends did it. Wow. Well, that's pretty impressive. We're just going to be chicks. I felt like I was in costume on Halloween if I, because I had to often wear something that was a more right. type of. Isn't that weird though with Halloween? Like you should be able to be anything, but we still like kind of like gender, cate- like categorize it. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do. Fucking Halloween. Okay. You know, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. But I, I started to get a lot of anxiety around Halloween because I, I didn't want to dress up in you know, a princess outfit or anything like that. But at least in the 80s, it wouldn't have really gone over okay if I became a Spider-Man. You know, so uh, it's there was very much a gender separation, even in the toy stores, just by color. Oh, for sure. Pink, pink side and the blue side. And uh, I I do worry that we could be going back into that that kind of uh, compartmentalized thinking if folks do dig their heels in a little more around these topics. So I think that's why it is important that, that we ask folks to just at least keep an open mind and consider that, you know, I recognize that there might be some folks, uh, some kids anyways, who 
might come to identify as, as trans and then recognize, you know what, this isn't for me or recognize that, you know, this was, feels more like a part of my gender expression. And, but I don't think that I identify as transgender and I don't want to take any steps or maybe they just want to take social, social steps. Right. I think that that would be definitely appropriate and healthy exploration. If we don't allow that exploration, I worry that there's going to be an exacerbation of baseline mental health challenges, which as we've discussed is already a significant issue for the trans population, especially kids right now. Uh, So I do think that it's important that we have those conversations and be open about it. And hopefully, you know, hearing from folks like myself that have had that experience, my earliest memories and, and going through a life that maybe it would have been different. You know, we do see more recent studies that show longitudinally that an earlier intervention for kids who identify as transgender at a very young age and are concrete and sure about this. I mean, I was adamant this was the case that that reduces a lifetime suicide risk. Uh, so if we can start to reach those kids uh, when they're at an age when they can start to embrace that identity, I think that not only helps that particular population, but it helps overall acceptance and the sense of belonging and community for everyone else too, because it doesn't become as strange or as weird or as different. And maybe we recognize that, hey, this child is transgender, but that doesn't mean necessarily that all the other kids in the class are going to become transgender as a result. Yeah. Uh, learn that education around how uh, gender identity develops. I also feel like, you know, with certain people, it's like, they'll be like, well, you know, I already accepted like gay and lesbian. It's like, I have to accept this shit now. You know, like people get so like into a, uh, like how much do you guys want? Right. That's not really what's going on here. It, you know, it's, it's just people have to, try to get to a point where obviously like in guidance counselors, like we're just not there yet in terms of like curriculum and then like just being like, you know, uh, staffed in these, in these certain situations, I think schools are doing a better job with it for sure. But like you said, it's, you know, the, those suicide attempt rate numbers are astronomically high. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. You know, for already a minority uh, group, right? right? So it's scary. And that's the thing that even as, my nephew's uncle that, you know, I'm even afraid of, I'm not afraid of him expressing himself. I'm afraid because I know how mean children can be. That's a big fear for a lot of folks. And I think that was probably my mom's biggest fear that I was going to face a a very difficult future, you know, not only on the playground and dealing with kids and how cruel they can be, but uh, definitely recognizing that throughout my life course, that could be, something that a lot of people could not accept and take extreme measures to end as it were. However, that, that, that plays out, unfortunately. Yeah. Cause it's like, I wish I could beat up a kid, but I can't. I don't have that urge very often. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just so it's rough when you hear a child express themselves for who they really want to be known as. Mm-hmm. And then you just look at it and say like, God, I hate kids. Cause I could, I just know how rough they could be. But a lot of it has to do with it. They're also kids. Right. You know? And then it's like, all right. Then like in my mind, I'm like, all right, just remember th- these are children. Children don't have the answers. They have a very hard time. Uh, just compartmentalizing normal, you know, like going to the bathroom. And then it's like, now you have these things that somebody has to deal with on a completely different level. 
just something as small as going to the bathroom. Right. You know, it, there's so much added stress. And, you know, for family members, we internalize everything. I'm sure that you dealt with that, you know, obviously throughout your entire journey. It's, you know, we suffer too, but we have to kind of realize that we have to be stronger for the people involved because if we don't have those conversations of just help me understand you, right? It's so, so much can happen just from talking and just being, you know, willing to listen. Nobody wants to listen. Everybody just wants to give their two cents or like, come up with some belief of why this this is this way or this is acceptable, it's unacceptable. And it, it's just kind of weird, the hills that we all choose to die on at times. It's very, it's very strange. It is, definitely. I think that this is one of those issues that definitely has the potential to fragment and divide a lot of people and definitely our country. Uh, I advocate very strongly for trans rights and moving forward. But I also have been cautious in, let's say, pushing the diversity dial too far forward too fast, because we do see that the research does show that in those instances, a group is going to feel left behind. And as we've seen in the last few years, uh, definitely there's white men uh, that are feeling very much left out of the conversation, feeling threatened. And that has something of a trickle-down effect when it comes to violence in terms of how that ends up really playing out uh, to fall on minority groups and the most vulnerable populations. So if we can help curb that off, I've felt very strongly that if we can advocate for trans rights, but go gently with this, not force email signatures in terms of putting pronouns in there at every company and, and force employees to... Uh, mandatory diversity trainings around this issue and make it a more optional piece, something that people can start to participate in. And hopefully at some point, folks will start to take a step forward. But I worry if we move the train, we're going to lose the end of that caboose and who knows what's going to happen after that. So uh, that could just further our divides. And my goal is to try and help bridge some of those divides. I just think that like what you're saying though, that just sounds way more realistic and like, you know, doable. I hope so. I hope so. And, and I see the bathroom issue kind of in that same way in the sense that I don't want it to go to an area where it, it almost feels like, is it separate but equal if there's a, a gender neutral bathroom? And I've seen single stall bathrooms that have been described as all gender. And I go, well, this is just a bathroom. Why is it? That, why do we need that terminology? Because there's a piece of me that is glad that I came to a place of transitioning when there were not gender neutral bathrooms because they made that choice between early in my transition when my appearance was starting to change and people would kind of look at me and go, oh, that's a man, oh, that's a woman, I don't know, what is it? Not the appropriate pronoun, but our brains to kind of figure it out. You know, and I, I had a few instances where I, I panicked and you started off to the women's room. And in one, one case, uh, the janitor was like, hey, bro, men's room. <laughs> and I was like, hey, thank yeah, you so yeah, much. Yeah. That would have been really embarrassing to go in there. So, you know, there were moments of validation in a sense that I had to make a decision around that. And I was going to go to the women's room because I, I felt like that was probably where I would be seen best and be at, at, um, my safety would be better protected in that moment, given how my appearance uh, came across to others. But yet the janitor saw me as a man. So that was very validating. So you, there was kind of a one choice or the other. 
Now, if I fast forward and there's a situation where there is an all gender bathroom and people around me know, for instance, in a workplace that I'm transgender, do I go to the men's room or do I go to the all gender bathroom? And that's where I start to wonder, well, what's going to happen if we do have folks that have transitioned and I want to identify as a man, but yet now we have an all gender bathroom. And is that where I'm supposed to go? So it starts to create some, some conundrums in uh, how we label and the signage around it. And I think that can definitely lead to some of that further. Why is this described as all gender that you can yeah, just imagine? It's, it's like accepting, but segregating at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of how I, I've seen it. And uh, from a sociological perspective, that's, that's unfortunately what it feels like to me. I don't know if we have any research around that. That's just my personal opinion and uh, educated thought. So obviously you have this moment with this janitor where like, you're like, oh, but you're like, you know what? That's pretty awesome. Thank you, janitor. Yeah. Shout out to that janitor, wherever he is right now. Right. Yeah. Thanks to that janitor. You transitioned at 31? Correct. Okay. So how long, because there is some science here, right? So how long does a transition take? So this is the part where I'm so uneducated that you're going to hear like these elementary school questions now. I just like to be as truthful and like and fluid as possible in terms of how long does a transition take? And then in the beginning, are you just like, this can't be fast enough or it can't be, or did you want it to be slower? Like, is there a speed that you control? Is that like, how does it work? That's a great question. I think uh, for me, the distress was pretty extreme early on and it felt extremely urgent when a lot of this really kind of started to resurface for me and I realized that, oh my gosh, I've been mixing up my sexual orientation and my gender identity all these years and all that stuff that I experienced was because this is really feeling like this is who I am. And when that started to really come out of the closet, as it were, it's just like all the toys fell out of the closet and I couldn't put the closet door back closed, you know? Yeah. Feeling like, oh my gosh, this is a mess. I've got to clean it up because if I don't, then I don't know what could happen. I live with mixed feature bipolar. So I did not quite have that definitive diagnosis at the time that my dysphoria resurfaced. And I wish I had, but uh, you know, hindsight 2020. And that's what happened to me too, though. I, I didn't get diagnosed with bipolar till I'm 33 now. I think I was like 28 or 29. Yeah. I was diagnosed with just like, you know, severe depression. So I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a difficult place to be. So and you know, definitely, as I, as I was saying, uh, you know, the, the kind of mix of emotions that can come along with that is kind of escalation of fear that the bipolar can take my thoughts racing to a place of I'm going to lose everything. If I do come out, I could lose, lose my partner. She identified as a lesbian. She was very versed in these things. She didn't want to be dating a man. There were a lot of those kinds of I could end up losing my relationship with my friends, mom, all that stuff that led me to a place of feeling like my only option was suicide. And I also ran into a lot of barriers in the sense that I sought out uh, different providers that could open some doors for me. I did need a couple of different signatures to get started on the transition process in, in a medical sense. But I found that to be very difficult because of my, my mental health history, coupled with a history of brain injury. And so the doctors were kind of going, well, I don't know, do we take a scalpel to these muscles that are apparently impaired neurologically for a type of double mastectomy with, with chest reconstruction, which is a top surgery that a lot of transgender men will undergo? Or do we provide this person with hormones and the form of testosterone that could end up 
really ramping up uh, some of these mental health symptoms or symptoms of brain injury. Uh, we've all heard about those athletes with roid rage. So I ran into a lot of barriers that really kind of pushed my timeline back in a very uncomfortable way. Uh, I will often in my talks describe the moments when my dysphoria was at, it, at its worst as some of the darkest moments of my life. And the level of self-loathing is something I have never experienced. And even struggling. Yeah. It, you know, even despite an MFA in creative writing, I can't tell you in words how much I wanted to disappear when that dysphoria resurfaced and transition couldn't have come quick enough. I wanted to make my body change overnight and I just loathed it. And that became something that uh, I think was a, a big precipitating factor for that suicide attempt. So fast forward after that, when I was able to get to providers that opened the doors for me and allowed me to start on hormone therapy, uh, I'd say with hormone therapy, it, it took, you know, you kind of see everybody's different, but, you know, a lot of folks stop getting their menstrual cycle pretty quickly. And then the, the physical changes can take a little longer in terms of the, the growth of the shoulders and facial hair. I think, you know, it kind of takes about two years before you're really kind of seen as a man. But I, I will say that the changes to the body, I feel like kind of continue uh, in terms of the redistribution of body hair, et cetera. I mean, I've even had to get like a bigger watch because the yeah, yeah. my other watch just was too tight anymore. And so uh, while my wrist can get bigger and my bones can get broader, a, a transgender woman wouldn't have that luxury of, of asking the body to kind of shrink down. Yeah, yeah. The journey for a transgender woman might be very different. But for myself, I think the medical piece, I say it took about two years to be able to be seen as a man. Uh, consistently, but there definitely is this kind of gray period for anyone undergoing that medical piece. And that medical piece can be uh, pretty challenging in the yeah, sense. It's got to be rough. I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine, but just being like, you know, how do we fucking speed this up? Yeah. Yeah. And then getting the approvals, getting the letters you need, and then trying to find a surgeon and getting it scheduled. I mean, it can really be a six to eight month process. So I really have encouraged folks to kind of slow that down in the sense of looking at it from a different perspective. I don't mean slow process down, but I mean, slow it down in your brain and think about each step as being a goal and an accomplishment. And if you get, hey, I got one of my letters to, for approval to start on hormone therapy. Awesome. That's a big goal that you just accomplished. I've got the consult with the doctor scheduled. Awesome. That's a big monumental step forward. And keep holding on to those kind of incremental steps that you're taking and reminding yourself that you are moving towards that goal. Uh, as someone who has run quite a few marathons with this neurological condition, counterintuitive, but very good for, for my particular condition and all of the systems and uh, mental health. I can appreciate that, you know, looking at the whole journey is a big, that seems overwhelming to run 26.2 miles on its, on its face. I don't think I could drive 26.2 miles. <laughs> my gosh i don't yeah, know i know to, so the price of gas alone and then just i probably get tired driving just driving 26 miles at this point yeah yeah so you want to break it down in your head right you're like okay yeah. halfway there okay closer to my destination than i was from where i yeah, left yeah might as well keep going you know and break it down that way where you really can start to see some tangible progress i think that's a, a big big piece of the resiliency that the research has found is really helpful for individuals who thrive through transit. You got to like count those little wins. Yeah. And then add them up. And then, you know, obviously you're building towards one big goal and that's, you know, actually just being able to 
live with your identity. I'm a cis bro. For me, it's something that I think, thankfully, I've never had uh, discrimination towards anyone, but I've always had questions, you know, because as somebody who's from the outside looking in, some, like you said, it's you can be very defensive because it's your identity, right? And you're like, you know, who is this fuck? I just coming in here and asking me a whole ton of questions, you know, like, but I really feel that that's the only way that we could really learn is by just asking the question, no matter how dumb they might sound. I just think that, you know, if people were people, like you said, will dig their heels in the ground and just be willing to be ignorant without asking any questions. Indeed. Indeed, they will. And I think we've gotten to a place unfortunately, where a lot of people are scared to ask questions. They're scared to ask something that might be deemed inappropriate or be insensitive. That's how I feel. I don't want to offend anybody, but I got questions. Right. You know, and it, it's just because I selfishly want to learn. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a good way to look at it in terms of you want to learn. You're, you're being humble about that. I don't, you know, hey, I don't know all the answers. You, you live this life, you tell me what your experience has been. And I think that that's a really a way to kind of allow someone whose experience has been different to a, feel empowered by that and yeah. kind of better tap into their own story and, and feel like, you know what, hey, maybe you're, you're coming at this with good intentions, like we talked about earlier, the importance of that. And if that's the case, then, hey, I want to I offer you some education as best I can so that hopefully, you know, in your future, you better understand these concepts and maybe then you'll help pass that along. I'm a big believer in the concept of paying it forward. So if we you know, can take what we know and offer that to someone else, and hopefully that does uh, create a chain event. Like I said, intent is a big deal. If you're asking questions to be an asshole, then you have a right to be protected. Just like this guy's just an asshole. For, I think, the listeners too, we've had uh, many people on this show. And you know, I've always kind of had a stress on this show just being that we look at all of these things as so dark and grim, right? So I'm going to ask you a dark and a grim question. Since, you know, your transition, what's it like having to pick up the check? <laughs> ah, that's, a, that's a good question. Well, I, I think there is kind of a, a shift in perception there and, and expectation. And a lot of that, you know, is, is definitely socially imposed uh, and culturally imposed. They don't take it as much other than that, uh, except I feel that it's a it's nice to be able to do that in the sense that I want to believe that chivalry isn't dead and that it's great to open the door for a, for a lady. And that makes me feel good. But I also recognize that for some folks in different acts like that might, might be deemed uh, or interpreted quite differently. If you would have met me, I'd be like, listen, just save some money. It's going to be an expensive lifestyle. We at least have to reach for the debit card first, you know, just that, you know, we have to do it, you know, and, and pick up the check. You know, I, I didn't want to get so dark. But, you know, it's just financially, you're going to put yourself in a little bit of a hole. You know what I mean? Yeah, there does seem to be that, that expectation uh, for men. And I think that's something that a lot of men who I, I'm not uh, a parent myself, but um, for individuals who are fathers, that that can be difficult in situations around divorce and custody. For sure. With the court system and trying to to really advocate for themselves and to be able to see their, their children and still be able to kind of keep a roof over their own head. And yeah, there are a lot of financial complexities that kind of come along with gender and very strong expectations around that, that 
I will say I, I did not experience when I was a woman. Us dudes have it rough. <laughs> I don't know about that, but it, there are some, some aspects of being a man that I think for uh, sure. are more, more challenging mental health being one of those things. Where, for sure. That's like one of the main reasons why we started the show was, you know, it's, um, you know, just men being able to express themselves. Right. Right. You know, especially when it comes to mental health. Another novice question. When you had the, what's the scientific term for having your breast removed? A uh, double mastectomy with chest reconstruction is the most common top procedure that a, a transgender man will undergo. What's the recovery time on that? Typically, it's a, about four weeks of kind of, well, you spend the first week kind of dealing with some bandages and, and drains and they reposition the nipples. So they're where a biological cisgendered male's right. uh, nipples would be. So it creates that appearance of a, of a cisgendered chest. Uh, so there is some grafting done there that needs to be tended to uh, the first week to 10 days. And then for about four weeks, I, I think you're, I guess four weeks, you're not supposed to lift more than about five pounds. Wow. Overhead. So that uh, I remember getting groceries at one point and I had done everything to, you know, like not lift things into the cart myself and you know, if it was, it wasn't a watermelon. It was, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. and then I got to my car and, and it, it, the, the trunk popped up and I went, Oh, <laughs> I can't reach that. And so it was uh, one of those moments where I, I realized that that's very limiting to not be able to pick up more than five pounds or reach above your shoulder level. Uh, but with my, my shoulder injury itself, that kind of necessitated some changes in the way that the surgeons worked with me in the sense that, uh, because of, uh, a hit I took in hockey, I ended up dislocating my shoulder and have uh, an injury to it that uh, unfortunately I can't get fixed because of my neurological condition. So that was a question around how to manage that. But definitely for myself, I felt like I got good care. Uh, they took some steps to kind of just modify where my arm position was right, during right. the surgery. And hey, the recovery went much smoother uh, than I think some of the folks feared it, it could for me. There's so much that you have to endure to get to this end goal. I'm not strong enough in my mind. You know what I mean? It's just like, that's just a journey that just feels like you said before, it's like, I would just hope it's over. Like, you know, like I just want this to be done with. Do you have a moment where you were like, I made it. Or do you still have moments where you're like, you still feel held back, whether it just be by society. And then, you know, obviously, you know, stuff that you deal with internally. I think there are a lot of moments where I really felt like, made it. I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at in my transition. And I feel that way consistently day in, day out that I'm happy where I'm at. I don't feel like I need to take any further steps. Uh, but you know, I have undergone a formal name and gender marker change and undergone the surgery that, that I spoke of and continue on my hormone therapy. And that has for me, any type of surgery below the waist generally it's pretty infrequent that individuals will undergo surgery below the waist, but I know because of my neurological condition, that wouldn't be an option for me anyway. Right. Uh, so that's uh, you know, something that I guess I've, I've come to terms with, but definitely I think the societal piece of that can hold you back, particularly when it's come to aspects of my previous identity coming back into my current sphere. I took a job in 2017 that, uh, was in a different state and in the state that I had lived in, I had disclosed a misdemeanor OWI from back when I was using and had been many, many years sober by that point. 
Uh, but I, Iowa does not expunge misdemeanors. Get this. They allowed me to change my birth certificate, but I could not expunge a misdemeanor OWI. Yeah, no, we, you have to hold on to that, though. <laughs> That's so weird that they make right? do that. I'm thinking, well, my gosh, the person who got the DUI, I guess, just, I mean, technically, obviously, I still exist. But I don't know what ended up happening when I got this job and I disclosed this DUI. Uh, I passed the background checks just as I always had in the state and in, in the state of Minnesota. But about two weeks into the job, the social services sent a letter indicating there had been additional or subsequent criminal history found on me, which it was not listed on the form what it was. Uh, but I did find out when I got the second letter that it was the exact arrest in OWI that I disclosed. I knew there was no additional criminal history out there on me, but for some reason I don't. I won't have any answers, but um, I don't know what happened. I don't know why those systems didn't align. And I'm concerned just with a, a background in the areas they have around uh, sociology, criminal justice, that there could be further challenges for individuals uh, in terms of aligning some of those systems to make sure that things are cohesive. Right. And I think that could be the same uh, true about other aspects of changing your life. You just you never think about all the things that you need to change. I know when I changed one of my, the internet bill, and I just was not getting through to who I was talking to. They weren't, they weren't quite grasping. I was going through a name change. I was asking. So you're getting all this mail and stuff too with a different identity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when I finally asked to speak to a supervisor, he finally came to the conclusion that my previous name had been Jennifer. Some folks might not tell you what their previous name might have been, but uh, I'm a little more fluid with that, having a couple of books out. It's just, yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, he said, well, you do realize that both Jennifer and Nate will need to be here in order to change the name on this account. And I thought, all right, I'll make sure that I'm here. <laughs> I'm here, stand over there. So I had to kind of make a joke out of it. And for each one of those kinds of hurdles that I would run into, I tried to remind myself that I'm offering some education of some form here and that I'm going to get through this. And this might just be something that these folks have never seen. And if I can help them in the learning process, awesome. So I have to ask, how did you settle on the name Nate? I have no idea. You know, I was writing my uh, first memoir when a lot of this was really coming to the surface. And I, I wanted to change a few names of folks to just protect their identity. And so I didn't want to name someone you know, with like a name that would have been popular and for someone born in the 30s. So I was looking at like popular baby names. Uh, for certain years uh, that matched up with these folks. And suddenly I found myself looking at a name for myself. And I went, well, what? I I'm the narrator. I'm not changing my name. This is a memoir. And so yeah, yeah. why is this happening? And why am I looking at male names? And so it started to kind of feel uncomfortable. And as the, the kind of closet door that I spoke of really opened and things started to really come to the surface, I explored with a couple different names. And I, after I did come out to my partner. It did kind of change some dynamics of our relationship, encouraging me to explore some of the different names and just try them on that I had the few names that I had been looking at. And Nate just stuck. And that it just felt right. Although I do get called Nick a lot because... Uh, because yeah, of Nick Cannon, name, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you, you know, came out to your partner, was she like, oh, I knew it? Or was she like, oh, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I think she had a sense that there was an element of my identity that may have identified more as, as trans. But, you know, we were, we were both kind of uh, middle of the road, more androgynous. And mm. 
I don't know that there was really a recognition that we cared too much about gender roles. And so in that sense, it, it made gender fluidity and how we expressed our gender much more natural in the relationship. So I think she interpreted it from a very intellectual standpoint and recognized that if this was coming out as it had when I was a kid, which she knew, it was probably pretty legitimate in terms of the intensity of the feelings I was having. So she seemed quite supportive, uh, but I did recognize, as I said, that, you know, we, all of a sudden there was this kind of, uh, should she step back? Like, hey, we never questioned who opened the door for who, you know, you just opened the door. Yeah. And this uh, became one of those scenarios where I could see that she really wanted me to be able to do those kind of more chivalrous things, but it, it just didn't quite flow with uh, where our relationship had been. I feel like people can look at it from like, that you're being like selfish. And it's like, oh, like, I can't believe you did this to me. It's so selfish of you. This is your identity that you're dealing with. So it sounds like she she was at least willing to understand, like, this is what you're going through at this, at this time. So I'm going to try and be here for you, at least somewhat. Right. Yeah. And, and that was very true. When my mental health really spiraled out of control and I, I had a, a second suicide attempt that she was very much involved in being in that um, scenario right there. Yeah, I think that was a, a traumatic thing for her, definitely. And that experience, uh, I think, was something that kind of led her to a place where she felt like she couldn't stay in the relationship. And I could see that there was kind of that, I don't know if I, how am I going to feel dating a man going forward? And I could see where that could have been problematic for her sense of identity because she did identify as a lesbian, as I said. And I also think that there's there was a sense that perhaps by letting me go, I was setting, she was setting me free. Right. To find myself. And I, I had been in a relationship pretty consistently since I was 16. So it was kind of a nice, refreshing change. Once I, I you know, obviously after a 10 year relationship, I was in some pretty dark places uh, emotionally and returned back to the house where I nearly ended my life uh, to find that she'd already moved out. And when I got out of the psych ward uh, following that suicide attempt. So that was a, a difficult time in my life, but I also uh, was able to find some some courage and resiliency within myself to make sure that I was able to get out of that environment and started to see my future and work towards that transition and focus on loving myself and recognizing that I had to learn to love myself before I could really truly be a good partner to anyone anyway. For sure. You know, it's also like kind of have to prove it to yourself that you can make it on your own a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a great sense of independence, you know, kind of uh, having my own little bachelor pad as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And getting back into it was a different career than I had had prior to the, the suicide attempt as a result of my uh, neurological condition. I wasn't able to work as a paralegal anymore, but it was a great blessing to be able to start working in memory care uh, where folks with dementia didn't matter to them that uh, my appearance right. was changing, that my name badge changed. And instead, once I started hormone therapy, I started to hear things like, well, he's just such a cute young man. So <laughs> I was like, awesome. These folks with yeah, dementia, right? great. They see the real me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I had to wonder what was wrong with the folks who were cognitively intact at that point. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it was a very wonderful environment for me to be in, uh, in much the way that you know my, my cat didn't see me any differently as my appearance changed. The folks that I was working with didn't see it and didn't care. I also did work at that time in some different environments with adolescents, for example. And those the kids were very aware of those changes. So it was a marked difference. Uh, but I found some tools in, in those early periods after that suicide attempt to really kind of keep plugging forward and 
and make sure that I was focusing, like I said earlier, on those kind of small incremental steps to not only grieve the loss of my relationship, but learn to love this person that I was becoming. For sure. And then also, I have like a couple like silly questions, but these are just questions that I have to ask. Do you have a new social security number? No, the social security number does stay the same. Folks really want to make sure that you get that updated to your new name, but the the number itself does stay the same. Uh, One of the things I was surprised that does not get changed as a result of that is a credit report. So that's something for trans folks to to keep in mind. Oh, wow. So they'll still send you your old name. There are likely still credit files under the previous name. And I have had a lot of concerns in terms of how that might contribute to potential use of uh, identity theft uh, by using a previous name, using someone's former name, uh, by accessing those kinds of documents that might be out there. So I think it's very important that folks who are undergoing transition recognize that there are some complexities to this, but you also want to be very careful about protecting your identity through the process as well. Obviously, there's just a ton of legalities that you got to go through. Right. Which is kind of like the stuff that if somebody is just so desperate to just wanting to get the process started, it's almost like you don't even think about that probably. At some point, you know, when you're running into barriers, you definitely are thinking about For it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So like you can't get through to the healthcare access or the, the legal access that you need or have the financial means to get there. For a lot of people, transition, that's a cost barrier. And that was definitely the case for myself. It was not covered under my insurance uh, in the state of Minnesota. And it didn't happen to be by the insurance company. I did have one opportunity to have the insurance look at it prior to that suicide attempt uh, when I was still on my partner's policy and that that company was going to deny it. So that was another kind of contributing factor to that suicide attempt. But once I got back into the workplace and I was working two jobs and I really just had my nose to the grindstone because I knew my goal was to take care of that transition process. So I really did start to kind of hone in and focus on where I could make the phone calls to best expedite that process and move it forward. When it comes to dating, do you share this about yourself or is this something that that now that you've transitioned, do you feel that you don't have to? What are the normalities, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, in terms of in the dating realm? The normalities in the dating realm. It's a loaded question. Yeah. Everybody's experience with that is going to be different depending on you know, what platform they're, what dating app they're using, all that, that kind of stuff. Uh, for myself personally, it's been important to make sure that I'm transparent about that from the beginning, in part because I wouldn't want to get involved and then have a situation come up where this comes out and all of a sudden it's a, you didn't tell me this. I would like to know this and I can understand why people would would want to know that. And that could definitely change the nature of that that relationship. So I think for me, it's almost like, hey, if you can accept me after hearing all these things that I have going on, then that's great. All right, yeah. Keep talking. But if yeah, not, then I don't think it's going to work. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything you miss about being a woman? I think I had a little more freedom to say some things that I don't feel I, I would be able to say now. That's a pretty big one. I would say uh, there are comments that just even in the workplace is, is just benign as, Hey, that's a cute blouse. Could right. be very, read very differently now that I'm a man. Yes. 
That is true. I didn't think about that. Kind of navigate some of those scenarios where for 31 years of my life, I wouldn't have thought twice about that. Even as a lesbian, if it was a, you know, like a, oh, they could think that I'm attracted to them. And right. I'd never thought about, you know, that kind of comment until, uh, until transition. So I, I definitely think there are aspects of, of having a, a little more freedom around that. It's like you're less threatening. Yes. And, and I think that's something that I've definitely, I miss as well. I, I think that this stigma around anger and uh, the expression of anger is exponentially larger for men. And having any kind of expression of, of anger as a man is, is just seemed as aggressive, unacceptable. Right. But yet, when I was 19, 20 years old, you know, it was a time when you had a pretty strong cohort of folks that were pretty strong, kind of yeah. tough kind of crowd and tomboys, as my generation might have called it, that you know, weren't afraid to curse like a sailor and to tell you what they think. But those same kinds of dialogues, it, if I engaged it now as a man, would be deemed very, very different. And I, I have definitely felt that stigma. I've definitely felt that stigma more in the last few years. And that's been very hard because it's tied into my healthcare and some of mm. the changes in providers that have come from the pandemic, but just not finding that the providers that I am seeing are they're seeing my diagnosis. And it seems that these newer providers that I'm, I'm connected to have kind of developed a profile of me based on that. And I, I can feel that just as an animal can feel if someone is, is afraid of them. That's the kind of sense that I get that I go, oh my gosh, do my diagnoses really make me look that scary? And then I have a movement disorder that can make me grimace and I, I can look like I'm frowning a lot or look upset. So people do uh, misread that as well. And that magnified uh, during the pandemic when, when the mask is on. Uh, right. An issue right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. You can imagine that that would just magnify that issue. It's like the opposite of RBF. Yeah. 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 It is a, it's a, it's a tough thing to navigate. And that's something that I'm, I'm still learning. And I think I'll always kind of be learning the ropes. I'm really grateful to have a a couple says guy friends in my life who I can ask some of these questions to, because you said, you know, Hey, these are things that I'd like to know. There are things that, you know, be like, Hey, which direction are you supposed to shave in this part of your face? Like things like that, you know, a trans guy might not have ever gotten that lesson, but having like a, a cis guy as a buddy might be a helpful kind of way to, to be able to connect on those topics. So do they have any, you know, like post transition or during transition, like education? Where at? Just in terms of, you know, like online, like to learn stuff like that, like, oh, like how to shave and, you know, just guy stuff. Personally, I haven't seen anything like that. Uh, I was, I was very impressed. Billion dollar idea, Nate. I just gave it to you. Yeah, that, that is definitely a great idea. I haven't seen anything quite like that. And that, that definitely could be a, a way for folks to, to connect. Is there anything that you regret about during your transition period that maybe you would have done different or something that you wish you maybe had done earlier, waited, whatever your answer may be? If we could talk about your brain injury and exactly what it is. Sure. I, I don't know that there is anything that I can really say that I... I wish I had done differently about my transition. I am very pleased with the way that things went. There is no real roadmap for it. And I'm very grateful that I had a a background in in, uh, working as a paralegal to kind of be able to navigate some of the nuances around the medical legal 
areas yeah, yeah, yeah. That be very difficult to navigate. So I am very pleased with the way that uh, everything has turned out. And you know, early on in transition, I, I was warned by a friend that you know this is going to be like going through menopause and male puberty at the same time. So I'm sure nobody really wants to sign up for that. And also described it as being like the, the Incredible Hulk, but I really felt like the Incredible Hulk with hot flashes. Yeah, it's like an emotional roller coaster to really get to, to this place. But there's nothing that I could really have done differently to change that. I, I had good providers that were uh, working with me on the testosterone dosage and how to manage that with my bipolar and felt that it went pretty well. So I don't think I would change a thing. And I do know that if I hadn't transitioned, I wouldn't be here. I would not be alive today. I, I would have taken my life. What uh, specific brain injury do you have? And it, you said it was from a, one of your suicide attempts, correct? Uh, correct. Yes. I, I actually did sustain a, a few brain injuries growing up playing hockey. hockey. Yeah. You know, in the 90s with concussions, it was just like, hey, can you see straight? All right. Yeah, chew an ice cube. Get back out there. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I did. You know, and that was it, until I took a hit from behind that dislocated my shoulder and, and that did knock me out. So that was um, a little more significant uh, injury there. But the suicide attempt I had at 17 uh, was a scenario that left me with both an anoxic brain injury from a lack of oxygen, as well as a traumatic brain injury from a fall. So uh, it was kind of a complex sequence of events uh, that... Uh, caused me to have a near-death experience and I kind of came to consciousness recognizing that I was still strangling on the ground uh, with a cord wrapped around my neck after a hanging attempt. And I shared those details. Uh, I know that that can be kind of graphic, but at the same time, I share those details because that particular event coupled with those head injuries was what my neurologist many years later would describe as kind of the perfect storm to rewire my brain. For sure. Left me with a neurological condition called dystonia, uh, which is a first cousin of Parkinson's disease that causes the muscles to, to contract and spasm when they should be relaxed. So this is a, a lifelong condition that I'll be living with and uh, a manifestation of it. it's an acquired condition from that brain injury. And definitely a, a reminder for me that uh, you know I put myself out there in a way to to kind of fight for women's rights. And I took a few hits, but yeah, yeah. that suicide attempt was something that I found myself, I could blame myself for the hockey injuries and say, what were you doing out there? And I could also blame myself for that suicide attempt and say, well, you know, you're the one that tried to end your life. I guess you made your bed and now you lie in it. And I've actually had people tell me that. That's a message that uh, I, I work with my internal dialogue to offset and remind myself that that particular Suicide attempt, uh, as the other one was, and suicide attempts generally are, was a, a symptom of my illness. That symptom of my illness led me to take actions that, unfortunately, were permanent. And I, though it took many years for those consequences to show up in the form of this neurological condition, I recognized that I am still here. I am still alive. I'm still breathing. Thankfully, I'm cognitively intact and able to share my story in a way that hopefully it maybe gives someone pause before they consider taking their lives. For sure. And, you know, obviously that's one of the goals that we've had here. We've had many people, you know, reach out to us about the show and about how it's helped them. But I really do feel that this episode is going to be very special. I think you're going to help a lot of people with this. So I really appreciate you taking the time dealing with my my ignorance uh, for, for lack of a better word. But I just find it so interesting. 
and I always said this too, like, you know, when people would say to me, like, somebody isn't born gay, somebody isn't born trans. My thing was like, like why would they want to make their lives so difficult? Mm-hmm. Like, who wants to go through that? That was always my argument. It's getting to a point where I'm just hoping that it's just so liberating for people to get to this point in their life where they can finally be themselves. And I just don't understand, you know, I mean, call me a liberal, I guess, if you want to, but it's just like, I just don't understand why we had to just get in the way of people's happiness. You know, if we're going to talk about being American, that's all, that's what America was built on. Right. For the most part, people being able, you know, the pursuit of happiness. So now we're just going to take this away from people. That is a very legitimate point. Yeah, it does seem not quite right. And I, I know a couple lawmakers have commented on the fact that there are so many anti-trans laws right now that, that are being uh, proposed and passed and, and commented that they've never seen such a large amount of hate directed at such a small group of people. You know, n- not to take anything from, you know, lesbians, gay people, queer, bisexual, but trans people got, got a tough shake out there, man. You guys do not get a lot of breaks. I've seen, though, that it has been an issue where you've had people from the trans community fighting so hard for gay rights, Mm -hmm. but it hasn't kind of been reciprocated the way that it should be. You know, I've been just been seeing, you know, and then, you know, obviously friends that I talk to, I have a couple of trans friends and then, you know, and, and it's something that they just feel like, where's love at? Yeah, I think there are a lot of folks that are trans that feel that way. That yeah, where where the support go? So from the the other letters of the of the acronym, as it were, I, I do recall seeing a political cartoon some time back where there was a, a little L with arms and a G with arms and a B with arms, and they were kind of climbing up and down these things and helping each other up with ropes. And then there was the T who was at the bottom of one of these caverns and said, "Uh, a little hope." Yeah, they're like, "Oh yeah, he's with us too." Uh, yeah, that one. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's just, uh, it's like you said, when it comes, you know, it could be a very dark thing, but I'm happy that you're here, that you're telling your story. It's a liberating thing. Do you find any levity, though, just in terms of like how like politicians go about like making these laws? I know they affect you personally, but like, do you just ever have like levity in the situations of them like trying to justify some of these things? I often just find myself going, wow, yeah, we're focusing on this right now. Why are we focusing on this particular issue when there are so many other larger issues in terms of just the operational workings of our country uh, that need to be addressed? And so it kind of makes me wonder uh, where our priorities are sometimes. And I, I do share concern, as we've seen with some of the experts recently talking about some of the, the ongoing kind of extremist ideology that a lot of that does seem to be related to identity matters. Uh, sure. Identity politics becomes a place, an arena that uh, is very volatile. And it's, it can be very, very scary to see that folks are focusing on these issues so tightly uh, that it's literally stripping people of their rights right now. How do you feel about the trans community and competitive sports? Since some of you know, that played, you know, played college hockey, uh, girls hockey. And then, you know, obviously you played um, hockey with, with the boys when you, when you were younger. How do you feel about uh, at the highest level, you know, the NCAAs? There was the swimmer recently, and then I think there was a, a soccer player, but I can't remember. What's your outlook on that? It's a really complex issue. I do think that in all of that, we don't talk about some of the 
youngsters who are identifying as transgender boys. And I think to myself, in terms of having grown up in Iowa and how ridiculous it is that they allowed me to change my birth certificate, but not expunge that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, right. And now I'm going, my gosh, I'm glad I did that back when I did, because that has honored my identity in a way where I don't know if that's something that might end up being repealed. So I, I really worry kind of about where we're at and in terms of kind of the flow of, of the dialogue. And I think that's where we really want to kind of start to intervene on some of the, the, the rhetoric as we know that that can take us to a, a very negative place. It does seem kind of jarring at times when I see some of these uh, proposed policies coming out and, and reflecting back on my time in Iowa. Now I have to wonder what would happen if I was still that girl playing hockey, because if I openly came out as transgender, just socially and decided to go by a boy's name, then I guess I could play on the boy's team or could I? Right. It, it becomes kind of a challenge. because right. So it's like the guys aren't going to be as worried, you know, like if it's on a social thing, it's like, oh, yeah, well, like we're dudes. Like for myself, playing hockey, that was something that, uh, you know, some parents expressed concern that at some point she is going to get hurt. Right. Uh, indeed, I did take some some injuries. Would I change anything in hindsight? No. I felt that I participated in a sport that gave me a real sense of joy in my youth. And that unfortunately did put me in a position where I was just kind of targeted, but right. that was a, a risk and benefit kind of analysis that me and my mom needed to make, not an organization. And so I think the, uh, the, the that piece of where folks like myself grew up really advocating, and this was supposed to be kind of a, you know, a move towards women's rights. And I put myself out, yeah. there, put my, my brain and my body out there on the line, essentially for an advancement of women's rights to now feel like in a way, some of that I'd be seen Quite differently now, if if it was oh, quite differently, it'd be the complete opposite. So it's very strange because in a way, it feels like we've gone backwards from when I was a kid. Is your mom still with us? My mom is still with us. Uh, she is now a two-time survivor of lung cancer, which is amazing. Wow! Um, so she has gone through a couple of treatments for that, but she is. Damn, God bless her. That is rough. Good for her. Yeah, she has had a, a tough go, but uh, she is a very, very resilient woman and is, uh, I think, a big reason why I've got a lot of those same qualities that have allowed me to kind of persevere through some of these darker days. And how's your relationship with her right now? Wonderful. I have, I have a great relationship with my mom. She's, Beautiful. Uh, she's just a, a fantastic human being and she's seen me through so much. And you know, the hardest thing for her to accept was my gender. Yeah. And that was something that it took some time for her to grieve. I think that's also important for parents and, and loved ones of those who are going through a transition process to recognize that there is going to be a need for some grief there. For sure. For a family member, perhaps. And family rejection is the number one risk, risk factor for suicide in the trans community. So having that relationship with my mom and, and connecting with my siblings and having the affirmation for my siblings of my gender has been uh, crucially important for me in terms of kind of maintaining stability. Sure. And then last question, I promise. I ask this question at the end of every episode. Nate, are you happy today? You know, I'm, I'm pretty happy today. I can't say that uh, there's a part of me that, you know, given the current climate, I think there's a part of me that's battling with the, some of the mental health symptoms that I do around affirming my own identity and that I am a man 
This is authentic. And it doesn't matter what people who don't believe that say. And that's something I had come to very good terms with for a while. So I think some of the the intensity of the frictions and divides that we're seeing right now has had something of an impact on, on how I kind of interpret that and can find myself falling into some of those negative self-thoughts around, well, you're not a, a real man. Right. And I really have been able to uh, pull myself out of those thoughts by using some of the, the coping skills that I'm very fortunate to have developed through my life with the, the treatments and uh, therapies that I've gone through to be able to kind of reframe some of those thoughts and remind myself that overall I am happy and I'm not going to let someone else or their opinion. It's all that matters. Got to be selfish when it comes to your happiness. Tell people all the time. That's right. Got to be selfish when it comes to your happiness. Listen, we're going to have to do this again at some point. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Instagram, Twitter, wherever they can find you? I do have a Facebook page you can check out as well as my website at natecannon.org. And certainly my books are available out there and Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all those good sites. So you just search my name. You should you should be able to find it pretty quick, but natecannon.org will get you right there to all the links. I love it. Nate Cannon, I think you're a great guy. I don't care what anybody has to say. I am very proud of you. I mean, I just met you, but I'm proud of you. And then uh, you know, you obviously going through what you've been through and then being able to take time out of your day to speak to me means so much to me, all of our guests, but you know, people get affected when it hits close to home. So, you know, so you know what we've been dealing with with my nephew, I really appreciate it. And this will be something that will mean a lot to me for a long time. So I really appreciate you taking the time. I really do. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!